Okay. In, uh, in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, verse 32, we find this verse. They, they being the children or the sons of Issachar, they were aware or uh, aware of or understood the times and knew what Israel should do. You know, the verse gives us no more information than that. But the context of the chapter has to do with those Israelites coming to the aid of King David. He was being attacked from all over, all around. That verse came to mind because I believe it it relates to our time. Christianity, particularly biblical Christianity, is being attacked from all sides, both from within the church and from without. I hope we are all aware of the times that we're in. And more importantly, that we have an understanding of what we should do as believers. If that's not where we are as believers, I hope, it's my prayer, I just prayed it, that this message will motivate us to get to where we need to be. So the title of this message is Understanding the Times and what we can do about it. We'll start with a survey of our times, which I would characterize as being up to our necks in apostasy. So what's my definition of apostasy? Well, the word in the Greek is apostasia, which has to do with a falling away, a defecting, a defecting from something. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Let no man deceive you by any means, for that day shall not come except there come a falling away first. The term used is the Greek word apostasia. In this context, it has to do with a falling away from or forsaking the truth. That is, excuse me, that is turning to false teachings and practices. It's also used in Acts chapter 21, verse 21, where the the Jewish leaders were accusing the Apostle Paul of forsaking, forsaking the teachings of Moses. I like the explanation of apostasy given by Samuel Andrews in his book, Christianity Christianity and Anti-Christianity in Their Final Conflict. That book, by the way, was written about 120 years ago. He simply looked at the heretical beliefs and practices recorded in the book of Revelation, which addresses much of what will take place prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Not to be confused with the rapture of the church, which is a separate event. Well, Andrews also looked to some of the epistles, then to the prophetic well, for their prophetic identification of the end times, these heresies, to see if they were cropping up in his own time, again, 120 years ago. They were, and in major ways. After reading his book, the only difference that I could see between his day and our day is the exponential growth of the false teachings. That, you know, Exponential in terms of we're overwhelmed, and you guys all know that. We're being overwhelmed by what's going on today. Well, a few things hadn't developed to the degree that they have today, but the roots, the roots of what he saw were there in his day. Psychology, particularly psychotherapy or psychological counseling as a false science, well, it hadn't really impacted the world or the church back then. Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung were, well, they were alive, but their names and their occult beliefs weren't that popular at the time. But here's what Samuel Andrews had to say in his explanation of of apostasy. He points to Revelation chapter 2, where Jesus addresses the, as you know, the church of Ephesus. And all the church, scripture says, they were doing many good works. But Jesus admonishes them. He admonishes their fellowship. He says, I have this against thee, that thou hast left thy first love. 
Well, Andrews explains why the church is drifting away from its love for Jesus is at the heart. It's at the heart of apostasy. I'm quoting from his book. It is thus in the loss, the loss of the first love, not in doctrinal errors, that we find the root of the falling away, the apostasy, in the beginning, and the key to the whole subsequent history of the church. Then began the spiritual separation from the head, which cannot cease till the first love has been regained. Remember, it is Jesus addressing, Jesus as the head of the church, addressing the church. He's the head of the church. The apostasy or falling away means generally a falling away from some given standard, a defection. Here it means a falling away from the truth, the true standing of the church as appointed by God. The general meaning leaves undetermined the degree of the apostasy or falling away, whether a total or partial denial of truth. Andrews goes on. The Apostle Paul distinguishes two forms of the apostasy, one being the corruption of Christianity, the other its absolute rejection. The falling away beginning with the loss of love is not to be confined to doctrine. It embraces the whole spiritual life and therefore the whole external order of the church. End of quote. When Jesus addresses the churches in Revelation, as I said, he's doing it as the head of the church. He's speaking to his body. And the body's love for him, as the body's love for him decreases, its obedience to him also decreases, resulting in the body doing its own thing without submitting to Jesus, the head of the church. That's how apostasy in its corrupting sense, develops. It is the forsaking of the truth through ceasing to love and obey the instructions of our Lord and Savior. Andrews identified much of what had influenced the church of his day. It was a case of the church in the world and the world in the church, all brought on by slipping away from the head. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. Again, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 1. The exhortation from the head to give earnest heed was not heeded then, and it's not heeded now. Let me give you an example of my own drifting away at times from my love for Jesus. I believe the reason that comes about at times is because I love me more than I love him. It's not all that complicated. Regrettable, yes, but not complicated. And if I'm loving me more than him, guess whose way I'm going to follow? Guess whose way I'm going to disregard? Hopefully, those times for me are growing less and less. It definitely will, the better I get to know him and love him. My own personal issues notwithstanding, the drift has turned into a massive spiritual landslide in Christendom in our day. It seems to be bearing the truth of God's word in every demonically conceived way possible. A couple of weeks ago, we had a Berean Call Bible Conference. The underlying theme was, you guys will relate to this, the perfect storm, as it is for the conference coming up. Well, if you're not familiar with the term, it's not a good thing. In fact, it's deadly. Before Peg of My Heart and I had our five children, we owned a, uh, an ocean-going sailboat. We never made distant, really distant, sea cruises, but we had our share of storms at sea. Usual storms at sea consist of what? High winds, downpour rains, big seas, 
It's not fun, but we learned how to handle all of that. However, in a perfect storm situation, the dangerous conditions are compounded, going way beyond what we've usually experienced, adding things we never faced before. That lack of experience in knowing how to handle the new conditions could spell disaster. The ship could very likely go down. Now, that's important to, for you to get the sense of it, at least visually, because that analogy fits the current condition of the church. Most believers have a very limited understanding of the different things that contribute to the apostasy, nor do they recognize how they're connected. Now, I'm not inferring that the ship of the church is going down, but to the degree that believers are being deceived by the apostasy, their fruitfulness, their fruitfulness in the Lord will be severely undermined. We had 10 speakers at our Berean Call Conference, each one addressing a specific topic related to the increasing apostasy. I just had these guys, all of them good friends of mine. I had them send an hour video, so we did it all online with the video. Well, I could talk about that later, but it's, it was amazing. Well, each one discussed heretical elements that are causing many believers to drift away, drift away from the scriptures. Now, here are some of the things that were addressed. Jay Segret. I love that guy. <laughs> He's going to be with us this weekend. I hope you're going to be here for that. Well, he has a ministry dealing with creation evolution called the, the Starting Point Project. What the title refers to is that all of what he presents starts with the belief in the existence of God and that the Bible is his word. That's got to be our starting point. His talk, I'm guessing, will center around the question. I hope it does. Uh, I don't know what he's going to do here, but if he just does exactly what he did at our conference, you guys are going to be blessed. But knowing Jay, he's terrific, so there'll be more. Well, his talk dealt with, must Christians bow to settled science? Well, he defines settled science as the belief that scientists in their so-called expertise have settled the issues related to things like climate change. They've settled the issues? Climate change, gay marriage, transgenderism, overpopulation, environmentalism, the green movement, COVID-19, critical race theory, the vaccines, and so forth. Jay challenges the highly promoted idea of follow the science. You heard that before? And gives examples of how that could be and has been really bad advice. In other words, we're told to trust science because scientists have it all worked out. It's all settled. Well, Jay gives a brief history of where science theories have gotten it wrong, and quite often. The two of us traveled to Russia not too long ago and taught at a pastor's conference, but there was a problem of sorts. How many of you guys know Jay or have seen some of his materials? Okay. (laughs) Jay gave our translator fits as he attempted to communicate Jay's sense of humor for the Russian audience. That is a a linguistic impossibility for any language on on the planet. And you'll see as you hear his talk this weekend. By the way, his humor notwithstanding, and our relationship notwithstanding, his talks are terrific. I can't wait. Another of our speakers was Don Veneau. He's the head of the apologetics ministry, Midwest Christian Outreach. And he addresses two influences among Christians today that undermine biblical Christianity. The Enneagram, Enneagram, and Black Life Matters. I mentioned this briefly when I was here in, I think it was April. Well, Black Life Matter, 
Black Lives Matter is perceived as having political ramifications related to the promotion of so-called social justice. That's why many are saying that. There are many are saying that, but that's not the whole story. Far from it. It's the religious nature underlying critical race theory and Black Lives Matter that is being sidestepped and avoided by the liberal media. Most Christians see through the false teaching of critical race theory, and not just because of the claim that all white people are racists, simply by the color of their skin. It perverts the biblical truth that there is only one race, one race begun by Adam and Eve with their descendants making up the very colorful, very colorful human race. Black Lives Matter is a pseudo-political movement that has as its foundation the West African religion of Ifa. It was started by two women, Patrice Colors and Melina Abdullah, both professed Marxists, according to their own testimony. They turned Ifa's to Ifa's in seeking a religion that had black origins and incorporated the Ifa rituals at the Black Lives Matter protests, which start with the calling upon the spirits of the dead, especially the dead person or persons for whom the protest was staged. Libations, that is, drink offerings, are then offered to the dead who are said to empower the protesters in order to achieve their goals. The Bible refers to such activities as divination and necromancy, which is condemned by the Bible because it involves communication with demons. Don also addresses the Enneagram, which is an occult practice that has heavily, heavily influenced Christendom today. It's one of the latest false teachings that promotes the belief that there are more effective ways to increase one's spirituality. It's claimed that it will help draw one closer to God. Obviously, the Bible's way of godliness is insufficient. So forget 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, which says, As his divine power has given to us all things, all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. The emphasis is upon realizing one's godhood, which is what the Enneagram is all about. According to its teachings, sin has not separated humanity from God. Hmm. Sin is, in fact, believing that we are separated from God. The Enneagram is tied in with the contemplative movement, which is a mystical approach to spirituality involving Eastern meditation. It's actually Christianized Hinduism. You may be familiar with some names connected with the contemplative movement, such as Richard Foster, Dallas Willard, Eugene Peterson, and Beth Moore. Enneagram books are proliferating today thanks to Actually, no thanks to Christian publishers such as Zondervan, Thomas Nelson, InterVarsity Press. My Canadian buddy, there's another issue. My Canadian buddy Carl Tykrib's talk has to do with the push for global citizenship, especially among the youth. Children from the earliest age possible are being indoctrinated to become agents of change, leading to a one-world government. This is their perspective. The goal is to get them to believe they can save the world from destruction, from wars and ecological disasters, overpopulation, social injustice, and religious conflict. We're talking about from kindergarten on Why are children the chief focus? Primarily because they are highly susceptible to being deceived by propaganda that has great emotional 
appeal. Hey, it worked for Hitler. It worked for Matheson, whose youth programs energized their fascist ideals, ideals as it did for many other totalitarian leaders throughout history. Our children here in the U.S. are being told that, that we are breaking the heart of our mother, Gaia, Mother Earth, through our destruction of our planet. And their generation is the one, their generation is the one that needs to save her. They're also being told that, that Christianity is the chief obstacle that keeps us from saving Mother Earth. Folks, this is huge throughout our school systems. Well, Carl raises the question, who is the savior of the world? Is it the God of the Bible who declares himself to be the creator and only savior? Or is it the collective efforts of mankind as good global citizens? What answer do you think is stressed in our schools? You don't have to think too hard on that one. Now, I hope it's becoming apparent that what's being described, and this is just three examples from some of our speakers, and you're going to get more this weekend. What's being described? All of these elements of the apostasy and more are related to and contributing to the religion and the kingdom of the Antichrist. The closer we get to that event, the more obvious it should become to believers. We're not going to be here for that. Not at all. But it's a preparation. It's a conditioning effect. You know, one of the the mentalities, you know, you've heard it from Warren Smith and and from many, many other solid teachers and so on. That just is, we're gods. We we forgot we were gods. Now we're, we're getting back to the fact that we are gods and so on. So it's the deification of mankind. The problem there is they can't, they haven't, and they won't be able to solve any of their problems. None whatsoever. Christianity also has its share of seduce the youth programs. It centers around eschatology. Actually, an ignorance and rejection of what the Bible declares about the last days, eschatology. Now, before I give you a specific example that has deceived and is deceiving thousands, thousands of young Christians, I think maybe it wasn't the last time I was here, but the year before I talked about something called the Send, which has 50,000 young people meeting in a stadium in Orlando, Florida. These young people, clueless, because the men that they were talking to, that, that were talking to them, actually they were a younger generation of the, the old guard, the Benny Hens, the Rodney Howard Browns, all of these guys are all a part of this SEND movement, which I, I described, and you can find it on our website if you're interested. So I want to make sure that we're on the same page regarding the Bible's timeline of major events. I'm not going to give you any esoteric little things. I'm talking about what the Bible says clearly. This happens, and then this happens, and then this is going to happen, and this is going to happen. There's a a timeline here. It's called prophecy. Well, the historic timeline began approximately 6,000 years ago with the six days of creation. Although God declared his creation to be very good, It became corrupted by the disobedience of Adam and Eve. And their sins spread throughout their offspring, causing God to destroy the world in a global flood, a global flood. How many people dismiss that idea? All of humanity was destroyed except for Noah and his family. Rebellion continued after the flood in the building of the Tower of Babylon the refusal of the people to inhabit the entire earth. God therefore confused their language, causing a worldwide dispersion. 
That was followed by the establishment of the Hebrew, also known as the Jewish people, through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and their being led from Egypt to the promised land. God's choosing of the Jews, also known as the Israelites, was to prepare a people and a nation for the coming of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, which was prophesied in Genesis chapter 3. That's the first prophecy given in the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Jesus is born of a virgin in Bethlehem of Judea. He was rejected as the king of the Jews, was crucified, died, and was buried. On the third day, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. In doing so, he, the perfect, sinless God-man, had paid the full penalty for the sins of mankind, offering salvation to all, to all who put their faith in him. Forty days after his resurrection, he ascended to heaven, where he is at the right hand of the Father. Now, events following Christ's ascension, I'll give them to you, very simple. And I'll give it to you in order. There was the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, A.D. 70. Israel under Roman rule, then under Islamic rule. The reestablishment of Israel as a nation, 1948. The rapture of the church. The establishment of the kingdom of the Antichrist. The time of Jacob's trouble, seven years of the great tribulation the second coming of Jesus Christ, the 1,000-year kingdom of Jesus, Jesus Christ ruling from Jerusalem, the judgment seats of Jesus Christ, one for rewarding believers, the other for judging those who had rejected Christ's salvation, known as the great white throne judgment, and then the dissolving of the heavens and the earth and the creation of the new heavens and the new earth. You know, I believe those events and their order in history are made very clear in Scripture. I'm sure you're all aware of that, but, you know, I talk to Christians who, they know some of those things, but they don't see the timeline. They don't see the events and how they take place. Well, does this come after this? And Eschatology is important. Prophecy is incredibly important. You know, without prophecy, why would you read your Bible? Prophecy proves that the Bible is God's word. Go to Isaiah 40, chapter 40, chapter 41, chapter 42, chapter 43, chapter 44, chapter 45, chapter 46. He alone is the God of prophecy. Can any of these other gods do it? No. And because they come true, we know what we're reading and what we're studying is God's word. Okay. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth, mouth of God. Well, again, I believe those events in their order in history are made very clear. Many, but many Christians professing true believers are either unaware or badly informed of the events and at timing, as I just said. Well, a few years ago, I visited Bethel Church in Redding, California. It's the home of the School of Supernatural Ministry, which has 3,000 students from all over the world. Bethel, if you're aware of it, you know, one of our speakers was Rod Page. If you want to take a look at one of our videos from our conference, he lays it out for you. But they're into the New Apostolic Reformation. They're into false teaching, um, Bill Johnson was one of the main speakers at, um, at the Send, which I described to you earlier. Apostasy after apostasy compounded. Just unbelievable. Well, I went to Bethel, and, um, you know, I, I have to go to some of these places. Bethel, Saddleback, Rick Warren's Church, Willow Creek, the Chicago area, these things. Why do I go? To get the scoop? Oh, man, i got to really get the dirt. No. I go because I want to make sure that I'm not misunderstanding what they're teaching. I, I, I want to know, I want to hear it from them. You know, yeah, look, 
Sometimes you can't do that, and you go by their writings and their books and, and so on and so forth. But that's my heart. Um, so that's why I went down to Bethel. I had the opportunity there to interview some of their students. Now, I was, again, very knowledgeable about what they were being taught. Yeah, I wanted to, I wanted to hear it from them. Well, they had two teachings that particularly interested me. The belief in a coming worldwide revival. That's what the send was all about. A worldwide revival. And the belief that they would be in charge of restoring the earth before the return of Jesus. Well, I sat in on the service that morning and and those points were underscored by the, the preacher's sermons. Well... That was greatly helpful to hear because it gave me the opportunity to question a third-year student from Australia whom I sat with at lunch, just briefly. He was with a group of his, you know, his fellow students, but he came over and sat next to me. He asked me what I thought of the sermon. I told him that I was curious about the coming worldwide revival and wasn't sure where that was found in Scripture. He couldn't tell me. I mentioned that, that I was also, let, 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 me, let me back up just a little bit. You know, <laughs> I've been in ministry for 40 years. I've learned a few things. One of the biggest mistakes that I made, especially at the beginning, was confrontation. <laughs> Lord had convicted me of that. I did more damage confronting people with the truth. Um, so how, how did I change? Now I ask questions, and I don't even have to give him any answers. I let, you know, Tom, stop it. You're trying to take the place of the Holy Spirit in their lives. I did stop it. Now it's a matter of asking them questions, and you guys can do the same. You don't have to tell them anything because, um, you know, you can, you can lead a horse to water, but if you have to lead them, sometimes they're, they're not going to drink. You guys know horses and so on. So, but the point being is that I just want to plant seeds of questions and let the Holy Spirit take over and work this. Because some are just going to blow it off. But some will think about it and when they go away. And it doesn't create this. Because, you know, I, I, I love these people. I, I care for them and so on. And I don't want to argue them, try to argue them into the kingdom. Apologetics is good, okay? But how you go about it, well, I've learned. So, I... Uh, I mentioned that I was wondering about the idea that Christians were designated to take over the world prior to and in order for Jesus to return and wondered where that was found in God's word. Again, he struggled to come up with where that's found in scripture. And I, I mean, I knew this, but I realized point blank, he had no clue about biblical eschatology. All those simple things that I just went through, that timeline, right? Apparently, eschatology, again, what the Bible says about the end times, isn't taught at the Bethel School. Now, that shouldn't be surprising since the school's view and what the Bible teaches are not the same. The teachers claim they have gotten it directly from God which they call his rhema, communication. They hear his voice. We could do a whole series on that error big time. That is said to supersede the the written word, and it's found throughout the word faith teachings of men such as Kenneth Copeland, Kenneth Hagin, Benny Hinn, and a host of others. And now, that's the old guard, but those related to them in some ways, but the younger generation... Same, same stuff. But they're more effective for young people because they're younger, they're more dynamic, and so on. But it's heresy to the max. Yet, an erroneous eschatology is not exclusive to these false prophets and hyper-charismatics. In fact, a false teaching about the timeline of the end times is prevalent. It is the prevalent belief throughout Christendom. Well, Tom, I just thought it was those wild-eyed... No, no. 
Well, you, you tell me. I'll just run, run, run this through for you. It's called amillennialism. Amillennialism. And it's the most common belief among professing Christians. It's the view of Roman Catholics, Greek and Russian Orthodox churches, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Episcopalians, Church of Christ, and a growing number of independent Baptist movements. And most of them, you know, especially the latter, are embracing Calvinism, which we'll touch upon a little bit. See, amillennialism denies the literal 1,000-year reign of Jesus Christ. It declares that number to be symbolic, with Christ reigning now from heaven. His His millennial reign began right after his ascension, according to them, and continues today. Satan was bound at the cross, and things are getting better, right? With a few notable exceptions, most Calvinists are amillennialists. That's part of their doctrinal baggage that the Reformers held over from their their day as Roman Catholics. They drew heavily on Augustine, the author of The City of God, the father of most of the dogmas of Roman Catholicism. Many Calvinists follow Augustine's method of biblical interpretation, relying heavily on allegory and the spiritualization of the scriptures. Now, that's a subjective way, a subjective way of making the Bible say anything you want. They go to a deeper level. They go to something more subjective, experiential, more feelings-oriented. If taking a pasture of scripture literally gets in the way of your eschatology, no problem. You simply reinterpret it figuratively through allegory. Now, I've had experience after experience after experience of having discussions with some of these guys. I'm talking about primarily Calvinists. The words used in Scripture, such as the thousand years stated in Revelation chapter 20, verses 2 to 7, are said, I've been told this, are said to have a deeper meaning, not signified by the context, the common understanding or the plain sense of how words are defined and used. That's what happens when you, may, you, you get away from not understanding the difference between what to take literally and what to take figuratively, especially if you have an agenda. You know, if you've already made up your mind where this is going, now you have to make the scriptures fit. Since Christ has not returned and we are supposedly in the millennium with Satan bound... Setting up his kingdom becomes the chief function of the body of Christ. Remember what I said at the beginning? Revelation chapter 2. Christ, the head of the church, is speaking to his body. You look at chapter 2, well, part of 1, chapter 2, and part 3 of Revelation. Jesus is taking his bride to the woodshed. You know, there are only two of the churches that get off. Those other ones are being corrected. Now you can imagine, well, just apply that to today, how far away we've gotten it. So that's, you know, um, again, I'll repeat it. Setting up his kingdom. They're thinking they're going to set up the kingdom of Christ. Setting up the kingdom of Christ now is the chief function of the body of Christ, according to them. Here again. We have the body taking control from the head of the church. Bad deal. Following Augustine's The City of God, Calvin resolved to establish the kingdom of God on earth in Geneva. That became a disaster fraught with legalism, if you've studied any of that history. Well, here's a church historian. He says, quote, Calvin set to work for the realization of his plans to convert Geneva into the first kingdom of God on earth, a community without corruption, disorder, vice, or sin, the new Jerusalem, a center from which the salvation of the world would radiate. His life, according to this historian, his life was devoted to the service of this one idea. End of quote. Well... It was akin to Roman Catholicism's global takeover plans, 
which was one reason Calvin was referred to as the, the Protestant Pope of Geneva. Today, we see young Christians being increased, increasingly exposed to kingdom dominion teachings. Now, I hope, you know, I know, you know Andy Woods, who's going to be another one of the speakers, uh, he, he wrote a terrific book on kingdom dominionism. And I hope he really lays this out for us. Again, I don't know what the Lord's going to have him speak. But, well, you know, as I mentioned, 50,000 young people. It's like they, they, they're drinking the Kool-Aid. Incredible. They're, it's emotional. Uh, it's power-packed. They got music. They got everything going. And uh, they, they, just, they bought it. But they're also getting it through YWAM. Through IHOP, I'm not talking about the pancake restaurant. I'm talking about the place in Saint Kansas City, and the younger generation of the Word, Faith, Healing, and Prosperity false prophets, which I mentioned. Many are being seduced by the music of Hillsong United and Jesus Culture. Now, if some young people are, are, are doubting that, much of the proof of this is revealed in the lyrics of their music. So it's not just a matter, oh yeah, well, they're with this by association. No, that's what they believe. They believe they're going to take over. The revival's coming. That's why this is their push for the revival, because they're going to be in charge once the, Bible, once the revival kicks in, and so on. It's false. You know, uh, Rob Page mentioned something. It's, it's heartbreaking. He said, Tom, these young people, they're in a school for, for uh, three years, you know, 3,000 students. He said, they leave the school and they're facing reality. And they don't have the, you know, the, the, the kind of camaraderie that they had back then with these lies and keep being reinforced and reinforced. They get out in the real world. Many of them walk away from the faith. It, it's heartbreaking. Well, you know, and, and, and even when they're, they're, they're some good is being attempted, they still, there's still problems. How many of you are familiar with the, the Truth Project? Well, you know, it, it's still around, but back maybe 10 years ago, it was huge. And it was an apologetics program produced by Focus on the Family and taught by Calvinists. Um, and you think, oh, man, this is good. This is really good apologetic stuff. Problem was, the foundation of it was recapturing the earth, taking control. Um, they were, these young people were taught to work for global transformation through leadership and the major fears of influence of society. This is their deal. In such areas as the state, the family, the community, education, labor, the media, and so forth. Now, you know, see, if that doesn't have an appeal, especially for young people, you know, I, I'd be shocked. But it's not true. It's not just the simple eschatology that I laid out for you guys. It's not true. It is clearly amillennial kingdom building. Well, I didn't have much time to spend with the Bethel students, so I had to leave him with something to seriously consider. You know, this goes a little against just asking him questions. Well, yeah, this, this came as a question. It had to do with my concern regarding his ignorance of eschatology. As I said, he was taught that he and his fellow students would be the ones who would contribute to the setting up of the kingdom of God before and in order for Jesus to return. Jesus can't return until they set up the kingdom. That's their teaching. That's what they believe. I told him that it was critical that he know, according to the scriptural timeline, which kingdom is next. There are only two choices the kingdom of Antichrist, or the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. If the kingdom of the Antichrist is next on the biblical timeline, which it clearly is, then all that he thinks he's doing for Jesus will instead be contributing to building Satan's kingdom. Now, it won't be overt, because you know, they think they're doing something good. You remember, uh, Satan comes as an angel of light, okay? So there's going to be a lot of stuff that they can buy into which are contrary to the word of God, but they seem to be good. You know, twice in Proverbs, there's a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And that death doesn't necessarily mean physical death. It means separation, separation from truth. Again, twice in Proverbs. 
Well, as I said, these young people, unintentionally, they're doing that very thing. Now, um, well, I, was, I, I mentioned Rob Page. As I said, if you want more information about that, you could check out his talk that he gave at our conference. But then, let's go back. Remember the title of this talk? Just to remind you, it's understanding the times and what we can do about it. Hopefully, hopefully you've gotten a better understanding of what's going on spiritually regarding the adversary's end-time strategy. Many of the speakers for the conference this weekend will likewise going to increase our biblical understanding of the prevailing apostasy. You know, Satan is all about keeping the lost in bondage and destroying the fruitful works of true believers. But Jesus said he came to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John chapter, chapter 3, verse 8. So obviously, we are not without help. We are not without a means of defense. If you have your Bibles, turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. If there's one verse in a scripture for me in these last days, come Lord, come quickly, but in these last days, if there's one verse I try to teach on every time I teach, at least bring people's attention to it. So, as I said, if I had to pick one verse out of the hundreds found in scripture that I would call the antidote, an antidote, a remedy, a list of actions that will guard us against being deceived or seduced by the schemes of Satan. It would be this verse, Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. We're told that they, those who were believers, continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Since this is a major activity on our part that will guard us against being deceived by the increasing apostasy, we need to evaluate where we are in this. Are we continuing steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine? In other words, are we taking in the word of God continually and steadfastly? 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, I mentioned it before, but it speaks prophetically of the problem we're now facing regarding the church in our day. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. That's what that's, the apostles' doctrine, the word of God. That's what it's talking about. But after their own lusts shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. In other words, teachers will tell them things their sinful nature wants to hear. Um, you know, <laughs> I just saw a quick side note here. Um, before COVID, and I travel all over the world, Mongolia, South Africa, where it might be. Here's my favorite. I, I keep saying, Lord, have, have somebody ask me this question. You know, it's almost impossible now with your mask on and all that. But anyway, what's the question? I just wanted to ask him, I want them to ask me, uh, so what is it you do? Here's my answer. I am, the, I am in the spiritual consumer advocacy business. What? And then I explain it. And when I explain it, I said, look, I'm an advocate for the truth. I, there, you know, there are a lot of guys out there, and they will tell me, oh, you mean like Joel Osteen? Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. But there are many others who are just, you know, doing their own thing spreading lies and false truths and so on. So, um, and sometimes that conversation gets really deep. It's really good. But I'm having trouble with my mask on <laughs> to do that. <laughs> anyway, so verse 4 says, they will turn from the truth. So what's, what's the remedy? What's the remedy for that? Well, you guys know it but I, I, I need to keep saying it to myself and anybody. 
Some time ago, I was speaking um, to my own fellowship at home, and I seem to remember asking if we could, out of our, talking to my fellowship, out of our busy schedules, if we could spend five minutes a day committed to reading the scriptures. I'm talking at least five minutes a day. Now, if you're thinking, well, Tom, that's pretty lame. I mean, what good is just five minutes? That's not my emphasis. My emphasis is a day part, the a day part. It's the daily discipline. I will guarantee you that if you make it your habit every day to get into the scriptures, it will increase greatly from five minutes. If you're a believer, it can't go any other way because it's exciting. But it's the discipline that we have trouble with. It's the habit. Well, I usually go at it for about 45 minutes to an hour. This isn't the Brian Call stuff, okay? This is me getting up at 4 a.m., 5 a.m. sometimes. I find that's the best time for me in the morning. Um, what else could I be doing at that time other than sleeping, right? Well, I take a nap before breakfast, so don't, don't think I'm a standout guy, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and, uh, well... See, when the Bible uses the terms continuing steadfastly, it's not referring to a hit-and-miss activity. It's not doing that. So how will this activity help us every day and in every way? Which it will. You will be pouring into your mind on a consistent basis thoughts directly from God. I hope you realize that we're in a continual struggle regarding our thinking. Uh, My pastor at home likes to call it stinking thinking. We got too much of that. I have too much of that sometimes. It's stinking when it's filled with the world's worries and fears, and we're getting more of that, especially with the media. And it's certainly, it's so-called wisdom. No, it's not even close. That being the case, we can't even recognize it's stinking because we don't have enough of God's word in us. His word in us to discern the difference. Twice in Proverbs, well, I mentioned that before, Proverbs 14, 12, and 16, 25, there's a way that seems right. I don't want the way that seems right to me. I want the way that seems, that I know is God's way and God's word. Um, Well, again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, in addition to the apostles' doctrine, which is the gospel taught through the full counsel of God. Believers are to circle the wagons. They must have fellowship with like-minded believers. Well, that's critical for protection from our three adversaries, the world, the flesh, and the devil. That's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3. The world in the sense that its culture is in rebellion against God. The flesh, in that although believers have been delivered from the control of sin through the blood of Jesus, they still have their old nature, which they can control. But it's a battle. Even so, the Lord has given us all that we need to win that battle, if if we will do things his way. Most believers know the verse in James, James chapter 4, verse 7. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Hold on, Tom. You left part of that out. The most important part, I think. Uh, They have left out what? Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. You can resist all you want. But if you haven't submitted to God and aren't enabled by the Holy Spirit that dwells within you, um, it doesn't work. Well, I'm just I'm going to close this off here. Um, well, in addition to the apostles' doctrine, which is the gospel taught through the full counsel of God that I mentioned, well, it's the world, the flesh, and what of the devil? Well, again, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Okay. What about the importance of fellowship? 
Solomon in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verses 9 to 12 tells us, well, it gives us a great insight. Basically, he's telling us that the go-it-alone ranger Christian approach is a bad deal. It lacks the necessary protection and support. If he falls, that's verse 10 in Ecclesiastes chapter 4, there's no one to help him up. Even our TV Lone Ranger figured that out, didn't he? If he got knocked out of his saddle, he had Tano to help him. Ecclesiastes tells us that two strands of a rope are better than one and adds three strands are even better. And we know who that third strand is, don't we? It's the Lord. So we need fellowship with other committed believers to help us in our walk with our Lord and Savior. And Acts chapter 242 continues with the breaking of bread. Now that could be believers sharing meals together, but it could also be speaking of remembering the Lord's Supper. Both are good, but I prefer thinking of it as what we do when we have communion together. You guys know it's a time of remembering what Jesus has done for us. It brings to mind the verse in 1 John 4, 19. We love him because he first loved us. I love that. I'm teaching myself to play that on the ukulele. (laughs) Uh, Ten years from now, I'll probably, if the Lord tarries, I'll probably be able to step on a stage and make it sound like something. Well, you know, we love him because he first loved us. And the more we think about it, meditate on that, the more we love him. We grow in our love for him. How could you not? So we get to what the three things mentioned in 432 have that we've mentioned. Biblical doctrine, fellowship, remembering the gospel. And again, bottom line, they have to be straightened and sustained by what? Prayer. Prayer. That would be the one thing that has helped the Berean call to be fruitful and productive in the 30 years. By God's grace, Dave Hunt and I started the ministry. Not only our prayers, but intercessory prayers by others who support the ministry. You know, I'll leave you with this one thought from one of our speakers, and I don't know if I already mentioned it. (laughs) I probably did. It's worth remembering again. My buddy Mike Warren likes to say, talking about his fellowship, we are premillennial pre-trib fellowship, but we are not pre-trouble. We're going to have to deal with that. And again, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 is the, well, it's the solution. It's the antidote. Okay. You know, there are a number of, um, well, I got a minute here. I'm just going to, I'm going to give you two prayers from the scriptures. And You know, in uh, my age and my time in ministry, God has been incredibly, um, I mean, helpful is like a joke to say that. No, he's been overwhelming in terms of his enabling, not just me, but the staff at the Breen Call uh, to be fruitful and productive. But here are two prayers. The Apostle Paul, this is, you can follow along with this, Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 14 and you'll see what a terrific prayer this is if you're not if you haven't been made aware of it recently the apostle Paul tells of his prayer for his brothers and sisters in Christ at Colossae the verse says starting off it says for this reason we also since the day we heard it do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power, for all patience and long-suffering with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in the light." He has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love 
in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Again, that's Colossians chapter 1, verses 9 to 14. Now, I covered your prayers for me and for our staff to that end, that those things might be manifest in my personal walk with Jesus and in fulfillment of the ministry that he's blessed me to be a part of. Now, here's my other favorite prayer. It's that of the Canaanite woman who wanted Jesus to help her daughter. She cried out to him simply, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. The Lord honored her prayer, and he will honor that prayer for you guys and and for me. So you may not remember all the things in Colossians, but God knows what I need, so Lord, help Tom will be more than sufficient. Let's pray. You know, once again, Lord, uh, there's so much to to know, to do, to... uh, Lord, in all of that, with what's going on today, we just want to be your instruments. We want to be your vessels. Uh, We want to share your light and your life, Lord. And we know this can't fall upon us without your help. So, Lord, we look to your Holy Spirit to enable us to do these things that will, first of all, glorify you and then bless and edify our brothers and sisters in Christ, and even those that don't know you, that you will be, that they will be drawn to you, Lord, that they might have what we've all received, hopefully here, the gift of eternal life. And I thank you for these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.